everyone! Welcome back to the third episode of Fintech Bite Size, hosted by the Global Fintech Network. I'm your host, Winky Leong, from the University of Hong Kong's Fintech Student Association. So today we're going to focus on cryptocurrency and blockchain, a very, very important area in fintech. And we're lucky enough to have Leo Wies, the co-founder and president of the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong, here with us today. So Leo, as the president, has accumulated over 6,000 members and hosted over 250 Bitcoin-related events. They run the most popular blockchain and also fintech meetup in Hong Kong for a consecutive six years. And Leo himself also co-hosted Skilling Bitcoin 2015 and Bitcoin Roundtable 2016. So let's get into today's conversation and I hope you enjoy this episode. So hi Leo, how are you? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Mm, so really, really happy to have you here with us today. So given your expertise in the cryptocurrency field, um, maybe to start off with, would you like to give a brief introduction about yourself, how you got into the Bitcoin industry, or maybe what you're working on in the space right now? You've already introduced uh, me and the community quite well. Uh, we started in 2012 with hosting Bitcoin meetups. Back then, Bitcoin was not wildly known. It was very difficult to find information about it. So the goal was really mainly to find others to talk about Bitcoin. We had lots of questions. We found a few other people who had lots of questions. It took us a while to really find out the answers. I think that's something that still fascinates me to this day about Bitcoin. It's not so much something that has been studied for a long time before it's been built, but it's something that's been built in secret and just been presented to us. And we had to take it and, and learn how it works and learn how it behaves. And um, we're still not quite sure what the implications of it are or how far it can really go. So a lot of the journey over the last yes, eight years um, has been to learn about Bitcoin and learn about what its potentials are and what yeah, what it has uh, achieved already versus what it can still achieve. I see, I see. I definitely agree that learning about Bitcoin is a never-ending journey. So following up on that, I would like to ask, you know, how is the Bitcoin ecosystem like in Hong Kong right now? In Hong Kong, it's also been quite interesting to see how Bitcoin fits into Hong Kong and how Hong Kong deals with Bitcoin. In some ways, Hong Kong has been or embracing Bitcoin a lot more than other places. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be partially because of the history as a financial center, mm-hmm. um, because there's been a lot more people here who've been interested in trading Bitcoin, who've been interested in investing it. Um, there's uh, a lot of money going around, not just from Hong Kongers, but from people from all around the region. At the same time, Hong Kong's legal framework for Bitcoin has remained pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And while, and there's this contradiction that Bitcoin is legally very easy to grasp in Hong Kong. It's very easy to understand how it's legally defined, what the implications of this are, how you account for it, how you pay your taxes, whether you're how you trade it, how you buy it and sell it. But at the same time, banks, for example, or, um, or regulators or um, government departments um, do not want to touch it at all. Um, they want to stay as far away from Bitcoin as they can. And 
that created um, a bit of a fascinating situation where there's actually quite a few successful Bitcoin companies in Hong Kong and quite a lot of activity, but none of this is getting a lot of credit or none of this is um, happening like quite out in the open. Um, for example, a unicorn startup, right? Usually they're quite celebrated. Usually um, they would be invited to all sorts of events and uh, they would be paraded around. They would be um, shown off. Um, but Hong Kong's Bitcoin unicorns um, are often um, a little bit hidden. And I think navigating these contradictions has been um, very, very fascinating and has always made it um, very much worthwhile to explain where we come from and where uh, Hong Kong stands, especially to outsiders. Mm, I'm actually wondering, like as you mentioned, that the government doesn't really want to touch Bitcoin. So do you view this as an advantage or disadvantage to the Bitcoin industry? Like I think so far for Hong Kong and for us as a community or us as an industry, it's been a main advantage um, because the regulatory certainty that we have in Hong Kong is much more valuable than an environment, for example, like in Singapore um, or in the UK, where there's always this expectation that the government is going to do more to help the industry, mm -hmm. but always this uncertainty of what is the law looking like in a year or in two years. In Hong Kong, we've always said that if the regulatory framework suits you as it is, um, then Hong Kong is a great place to start your Bitcoin business um, because nothing is going to change. But if the regulatory framework doesn't suit you, then um, it's pretty much the worst place because it's not going to change. I see, I see. I'd like to ask further regarding this. Like, what is the reason behind this fear or anxiety around it? Like, what is hindering the government to actually touch Bitcoin? Bitcoin's properties are something that the government is very uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to understand. Bitcoin does not ask for your identity. Mm -hmm. You cannot freeze a Bitcoin account. Mm -hmm. a Bitcoin cannot be changed easily. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin transaction cannot be censored. And those are all things that the government wants to do in their financial system. Um, so currently, the government can go to any bank and ask the bank to close their account. Um, foreign governments can to go to Hong Kong banks mm -hmm. and ask them to close accounts. They can ask them to not make transactions. They can ask them to, um, to ask for additional information. And they can ask them to deny bank accounts to entire groups of people. Mm -hmm. If you are... If you have a, for example, Middle Eastern background, um, then it can get very difficult in Hong Kong to get a bank account. And all these are things that the government, not just the Hong Kong government, but generally governments want to continue to do. These are tools that they have and they do not want to lose these policy tools. Mm -hmm. Now, in Bitcoin, these tools are not available because Bitcoin is a very um, neutral um, transaction system or a very neutral financial system. And in some ways... Some governments fear that others are going to use these tools against them. Mm -hmm. um, think of um, think of a large uh, um, think of the United States, for example. They have used their financial system against others. Um, I think famous is Iran, famous is Ukraine, mm -hmm. and 
countries like Japan fear that the same could happen um, to them. Maybe not um, the United States, but maybe others. Now, if this happens to them, then they might be willing to accept Bitcoin as a alternative, mm -hmm. as an alternative system, because losing the tools is still better than having these tools used against you. Yeah. If you had to, if you had to choose between a fight where you have the bigger guns, then of course you're going to want to preserve that status quo where you have the bigger guns. Mm -hmm. But if now somebody gets even larger guns, you might prefer a situation where nobody has any guns. Nice. And that, I think that's very far away. Bitcoin is not going to be adopted by large nation states very soon. Mm -hmm. um, Japan is not going to move over to conduct international trade with Bitcoin. But especially in Asia, quite a few consider Bitcoin as interesting enough or having enough potential to one day be able to do that, that they embrace it. Yeah, I think you brought up some very good points and insights on how, although far away, Bitcoin may be used as a tool or a weapon by nations because of its unique and also censorship-resistant properties. So Bitcoin actually might seem complex to a lot of people. I think when uh, people hear it as a buzzword in this era, they go like, oh, um, fintech is a Bitcoin, is a cryptocurrency. So it's kind of like an equation. So perhaps you would like to share a bit about, you know, the technology behind Bitcoin. How has it developed over the years since its existence in 2009? I still think Bitcoin is far easier to explain than how money works. Mm -hmm. um, even just explaining how credit cards function and how money is being settled behind the scenes in credit card payments is incredibly complicated and difficult. Uh, in Bitcoin, the main challenge is that we it requires a bit of a, a knowledge about how computers work and how networks work mm -hmm. um, a little bit about also how um, sort of economics work because mm -hmm. um, bitcoin is not just a technological system but it's really a network of people who behave mm -hmm. in a certain way mm -hmm. and who are being given certain incentives and what holds the network together is ultimately that these incentives create a robust system so we can we can try it with explaining it um so bitcoin is a computer program mm -hmm. that runs on your computer um, i can run it on my computer and thousands of other people will run it on their computer and this code will define how we interact with each other for example your computer connect can connect to my computer and ask my computer have you seen any recent transactions um, it can also ask, have you seen any recent blocks? Mm -hmm. And a block is a chunk of transactions that are pulled together into a single file. Mm -hmm. Think of it as a, uh, as a folder with lots of little transactions inside. And this folder is signed and stamped. Um, and only if this folder is properly signed and stamped will your computer accept it as a valid block, as a valid folder of transactions. Mm -hmm. Now, if we want to get in the business of signing and stamping transactions, um, we need to make our computers do work. Um, so we need to plug them into the electricity socket because it consumes a lot of electricity. And then our computer will start calculating. And these calculations are 
sometimes called complicated puzzles, but they're really a very dull, repetitive guessing work. Mm -hmm. And it's really just like making very dull calculations to find a solution to a mathematical equation that is very easy to verify, but very difficult to come up with. So now imagine our computer had spent 10 minutes um, consuming a bit of electricity to stamp such a block, then I can pass on this block. And as more and more people um, do this, the blockchain becomes longer and longer, Mm -hmm. and we have this longer and longer history of transactions. Mm -hmm. Now, because we use electricity and because we need to use our computers, we need some kind of incentive to do this. Because why would we donate our time and money for this network? The way the network provides us with an incentive is that the network creates or allows us to, together with such a stamped folder, such a stamped block, Mm -hmm. It allows us to create Bitcoin out of nowhere. Currently, that's 6.25 Bitcoin that you're allowed to create out of nowhere. And that um, very neatly solves a number of problems. So first, now I have an incentive to use electricity to create these blocks. Now I have an incentive to make this network more secure by figuring out how I can get cheaper electricity, how I can get more electricity, how I can get better computers. But it also helps us to distribute new Bitcoins to everybody. And as opposed to, for example, the US dollar system, where US dollars are simply printed by the Federal Reserve and then given to the banks, um, in Bitcoin, not even the founder really gave himself Bitcoin. Um, Not even the founder created Bitcoin out of nowhere and, and gave it to themselves. Um, but rather the participants of the network are being given these Bitcoins as a reward. And as soon as they have them, they can start trading. Mm. They can sell them, they can spend them. And that's how we know there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoins ever. And that's how we know that the schedule in which they're being slowly created and given out. Mm. Thank you, Leo. I really appreciate how you broke down the concepts into plain English. And after talking about the technology, how do you see Bitcoin being a global payment system? Like what kind of barriers or potentials in Bitcoin do you see in this aspect? One problem is definitely Bitcoin's volatility. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's a relatively small market, mm-hmm. and in the beginning there were lots of Bitcoins created, now we're slowly going towards fewer Bitcoins being created. Mm-hmm. In maybe eight years, there will only be one Bitcoin every every 10 minutes as opposed to um, six Bitcoin now. The, that means that the price goes up and down as there might be, there might be illiquidity in the market, but also there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, think of eight years ago, nobody really knew whether Bitcoin has a future or not, and nobody was really using Bitcoin. Today, there's quite a few people using Bitcoin and there's quite a, a vibrant economy around it. And mm-hmm. by now, we probably know that the United States or Japan is probably not going to ban it. Japan has embraced it. Mm-hmm. Um, the European Union is probably not going to ban it. So all these, all this information that's been flowing in has also um, yeah, allowed the price to rise. And if we 
think of Bitcoin's potential of this being used as global internet money, then Bitcoin can be worth a lot more. Um, but maybe the experiment doesn't work out and Bitcoin is worth nothing. So as people are trying to figure out which one of these um, it is, um, the price moves quite a bit. And that's a big barrier to accepting Bitcoin as payments um, because it requires, ideally, you'd be able to make payments between two individuals or two businesses without an intermediary. That's Bitcoin's promise. You don't need a bank. You don't need a processor. But now we have volatility in Bitcoin and suddenly we need third parties to protect against some of the risks. Um, Bitcoin is still very attractive because you can be anywhere in the world and accept Bitcoin payments anonymously. Um, I can be anywhere in the world and make payments. I can be anybody. I don't need to, I might not have a passport or I might um, I might not be, um, um, I might not have a proper visa, but I can still get a Bitcoin account and I can still um, use uh, Bitcoin to send money back home or to make mm-hmm. uh, payments. But if we want to do this efficiently, then now with Bitcoin's volatility, we need some kind of hedge. Uh, so we either need a product that allows us to quickly sell these Bitcoin and give us, for example, US dollars or somewhat protect us against the volatility. And that's, of course, a, a bit of a shortcoming right now. Talking about volatility, I wonder, like, during this COVID-19 period, does it actually affect the Bitcoin market? Like, did it bring any ups or any downs or is there any effect? Surprisingly little. Mm-hmm. The stock markets have moved quite a bit more than Bitcoin has. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think Bitcoin's fundamentals or Bitcoin's fundamental value proposition has become a lot more obvious. We are very concerned with the way that especially the U.S. Federal Reserve is printing money. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hong Kong, we still have the Hong Kong dollar pegged to the U.S. dollar. And that means that this money printing in America is also going to affect us. And that can lead to inflation. Um, and that can lead to um, quite a fair bit of volatility, too. And eventually this volatility in the US dollar will also translate into extra costs. And we are afraid of the weaponization of the US dollar financial system, mm-hmm. um, which uh, President Trump has yeah, repeatedly made, uh, made clear that he intends to use access to the US dollar system as a weapon. Now with Bitcoin, it becomes a lot easier to understand of why Bitcoin's properties are valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, because in Bitcoin, nobody can print extra Bitcoin. It's 21 million. Nobody can say, let's make it double or let's create a million more or um, the economy is not doing well. We need to create them faster. Nobody's able to do that, but also nobody's able to use Bitcoin as a weapon. Um, sometimes we don't like that because our um, because people we don't like are using Bitcoin. Um, and sometimes that's great because the people we don't like cannot stop us from using Bitcoin either. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit of a of a neutral um, um, highway, of a neutral highway to transact money in a similar way that the Internet is a very neutral highway to transact information. And I do think that analogy still holds quite well, that Bitcoin is money for the Internet mm-hmm. or that Bitcoin is the Internet, but for money yeah. in that um, it's a common protocol that we all share um, that nobody's able to change mm-hmm. um, that is very predictable that mm-hmm. is far easier to understand than the existing system and that we can all plug into if we like and we can mm-hmm. make a 
yeah, we can make our own decision of whether we want to use this for ourselves. Um, but we can't stop others from using this. Yeah, I agree with what you said about how Bitcoin is kind of like a neutral highway for transactions. And in fact, I believe Bitcoin was created among other reasons to, you know, protect users from being traced, being surveilled, and censored as a centralized financial system. But however, I would like to hear more about the privacy nature of Bitcoin, like how private it actually is, like how anonymous it actually is. So by default, it would be already a lot more private than the existing system. When you get a credit card, when you open a bank account, it always has your real name and your identity number stamped to every transaction. Mm -hmm. And in Bitcoin, you can create an account anonymously. And even if we don't take any precautions, then already it would be a lot more difficult for somebody to find out that you have Bitcoin or who you transacted with. But if we assume that we have very well-funded and intelligent adversaries who are going to invest quite a bit of resources in finding that out, then we also need to take some precautions. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these precautions um, probably look like being careful in who we interact with. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you want to buy Bitcoins anonymously, then going to a regulated United States exchange is probably not going to be a great solution mm -hmm. because the exchange is going to ask for your identity information. The yeah. exchange is going to pass over information about what addresses you control and what wallets mm -hmm. you own and how many Bitcoins you have and what transactions you make. Um, so we're going to need to find a way to buy Bitcoins more anonymously. So we can, maybe we know somebody who can sell us Bitcoin. Um, maybe we can, in Hong Kong, we can always go to a Bitcoin ATM. Mm -hmm. um, some places still allow us, there's a peer-to-peer -peer exchanges that allow us to safely find strangers on the internet who are willing to buy Bitcoin from us. Mm -hmm. And then them or sell us Bitcoin. And then we might have to make a cash deposit into their account, for example, um, and they send us the Bitcoin to us. And mm -hmm. um, there are still a few more precautions we can take. Um, so if you want to look up coin join or mixing um, or pay join, then there's a quite a few interesting technologies that allow you to more privately interact online. Mm -hmm. And some of them are only now really gaining traction um, others are not quite at the point where um, they're very user-friendly yet. Um, a lot of this is also going to change with things like the Lightning Network, mm -hmm. which promises a very cheap and fast way to exchange Bitcoin uh, between, between two people, especially in small amounts. Yeah, I guess to put it simply, um, it is pseudonymous, where it's kind of like anonymous... But at the end of the day, it still comes down to us to choose the wise and right way to ensure our identities are actually protected. So one more question I would like to ask is that, what do you think we need to work on for the future of Bitcoin? I think for Bitcoin's future, there still are quite a few improvements that need to be made. Bitcoin has improved a lot over the last five years. Um, it has improved a lot without really changing itself fundamentally. And I think that's a big strength. Um, preserving that is going to become very difficult. The more people get involved in Bitcoin, the more people are using it, um, the more difficult it becomes to change it. And that's a great thing mm -hmm. um, because we don't want Bitcoin to be easily controlled by anybody. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we still need to introduce a couple of um, improvements and efficiency gains. Yeah.
So before we end, perhaps you would like to talk more about the Bitcoin Association. Like, yeah, I see Bitcoin advertisement <laughs> by, by the Hong Kong U bus station <laughs> and also see like very iconic Hong Kong trams with the Bitcoin ads on it. So I wonder like, you know, if our audience, like some people are actually interested to know more about Bitcoin and want to have a community to engage in, like maybe Bitcoin Association, something yeah. to do with. Yeah. Find us on bitcoin.org.hk. We host regular meetups. Um, we just began resuming our meetups in person once a month. We also have virtual meetups. Um, we would we very much looking forward to hosting lectures again, um, workshops in which we sometimes just demonstrate what Bitcoin can do. Sometimes explain how you can create your own wallet uh, or explain how um, really the technology works. So if you're looking for a longer introduction on exactly what Bitcoin mining is and blocks. Um, then, yeah, look for us on our website, bitcoin.org.hk, or on Meetup, um, the Bitcoin HK, um, or various social media under Bitcoin Org HK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good initiative, you know, to have a platform where people can enjoy, like, this access to this community and also maybe help foster or initiate the landscape of Bitcoin in yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, that's a very great way to end this episode. And thank you so much, Leo, again for being here and giving some good insights and explanations to these areas behind cryptocurrency. Thank you for having me. So I hope all of you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for the next one hosted by our friends from the University College London in the UK on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whichever platform you get your podcast from. And don't forget to check us out, the Global Fintech Network uh, on your social media platforms. And we look forward to creating more content for you and with you. Mm-hmm.